Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of today's scripture from John 21, verses 1 through 23. This can be found in your pew Bible on page 907. Jesus appears to the seven disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this to him, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, and the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I'm very tempted to say the sermon is done uh, after the song, Jesus Christ, come into my, our night. Because uh, that's really the essence of the message today, is Christ coming into our nights, whether, whether we are not yet Christians or have been Christians for a long time. Let's pray. Our Father, what wonderful truths, real human truths uh, that are exposed today. And I just pray that you would meet us with the words of Christ wherever we are, that you would draw us ever closer to him, but that most of all, not only being drawn close, we would remain in him, we would abide him, we would live in him. Christ, we pray. Amen. What if the God who created the universe became a human? It was born as a baby and lived among us, enduring every trial, every temptation, every struggle, every difficulty that we would ever experience. And he came and he brought a message transforming truth that offered himself as life itself. And yet they, he's rejected and he's tortured, he's ridiculed and he's nailed to a cross. What, what if that person, God in the flesh, actually took our sin while he was on the cross? And then he, he died. And what if he was buried? But three days later, he came alive again. What would your response be if that was true? Well, my response was similar to a, 
a young man I met in Dallas, Texas one Christmas season. And I asked him, why do we celebrate Christmas? He responded, oh, it's because of the birth of Jesus. And I followed up. Out of all the people ever born, why do we celebrate the birth of Jesus? He quickly replied, because he's the savior of the world. And I was encouraged by that, but I thought I'd ask one more question. So what does it mean that he's savior of the world? He shrugged his shoulders and said, it beats me. <laughs> this incredible truth really not explored. And that really is my life uh, during my teen years and college years. I, I went to church. I heard all of this, celebrated Christmas, <clears throat> celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, Good Friday. Uh, but it really meant nothing to me. It was, it was just there. And my response was to carry on my life and maybe go to church and that was about it. Pray to God when I felt I was in trouble, because I, I thought I was fine with God. I was a nice person, and I did go to church. But then my brother, a rebellious, rebellious guy, became a Christian, and his life was transformed. And so I went to church with him. I went to some Bible studies for two weeks. And it struck me as I got around these Christians that there was a whole different dimension to his faith than mine. And I came to the realization that what he said about Jesus Christ was real and true. So at the end of the two weeks, I knelt down before God and I said, God, I know this is true. I know this is real. But I'm having too much fun in college. Will you tap me on the shoulder in a few years? Graciously, God did tap me on the shoulder in a few years. In that time, I accepted Christ. And that was transforming. My, I was on fire for Jesus. I couldn't get enough of the word of God. I couldn't tell enough people about Christ. I couldn't go to enough church services and Bible studies. I told everybody I knew about Christ. Family, I'd go to the airport, the laundromat, I was telling people about Christ. But gradually the flame dwindled. And I wasn't on fire. If you can relate to me as one before I accepted Christ or one who fires dwindled after I accepted Christ, uh, this passage is for you. Because we find in it the di disciples who had the glorious truths of Jesus Christ before them. And yet, they're no longer on fire. What I want to do today is look at Jesus' response to them and how he reignites the flame in their lives and how he can reignite the flame in our lives by awakening us with his presence, commissioning us with his love, and challenging us with our futures. So we read the beginning of the chapter. Now Jesus did, excuse me. I went too far ahead. Okay. 
So what I want to do is, is set this, this chapter. It appears as though John concludes his book in chapter 20. John has started with Jesus, how he became, as God, how he became man, how he lived out his life, was crucified, and then resurrected, and he appeared to the disciples on two occasions. And then John wraps it up by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is a tremendous conclusion. And so it has puzzled a lot of scholars to say, why chapter 21? Some even say it must have been added later by someone other than John, even though there's no evidence of that. But I think as we look at it closely, what we see is Jesus is showing us the disciples' response and then his response to them. Uh, so let's start in the chapter. It says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here you have seven disciples who lived with Jesus for three years, who listened to all of his teaching, were inspired by him. They followed him up to the cross where they left him, disheartened, they hid in an upper room, and then Jesus appears. They see Jesus. And then a week later, they see Jesus, and the scene culminates with Thomas saying, my Lord and my God. Imagine that experience. And yet, what do they do next? They go fishing. Now, some commentators justify this and say, well, uh, Jesus told them to go to Galilee, so they get up there and they decide, well, instead of just wasting time, let's make some money and we'll go fishing. But John offers us clues to give us a different picture of the disciples' response. They weren't just biding time while they waited to see Jesus again. They were sliding back into their former lives. See, John is as much an artist as he is an author. You have to understand that as you look at him. He uses historical realities to paint spiritual truths. He, run, he weaves themes throughout his book, throughout his work, that uh, just leap off the pages when you, you search for them. He is an artist, and so he chooses his words very carefully. He points out that the disciples are fishing at night, and they are, they're fishing at night. D.A. Carson says, 
The best clue lies in Jesus' John's use of night elsewhere. In each instance, the word is either used metaphorically for moral and spiritual darkness, or it refers to the nighttime hours. It bears the same moral and spiritual symbolism. What's he said? When you see John using night, realizing he's talking about a spiritual condition as well as a physical reality. John opens his book with a picture of darkness and he says, Jesus, the word comes as a light and it shines in the darkness and the darkness couldn't overtake it. He speaks about Nicodemus coming at night and he came at night for personal reasons. But John is painting a picture of Nicodemus. Everyone thinks Nicodemus is the epitome of a spiritual person in touch with God. He's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. But in reality, he is spiritually dark. Jesus says in John 11, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus gathers the disciples for the Last Supper. And Judas leaves in order to betray Jesus. John makes the comment, and it was night. D.A. Carson says, This fishing expedition and the dialogue that ensues do not read like the lives of men on a spirit-empowered mission. There's no evidence that the nighttime was considered best for fishing on Galilee. One wonders if the evangelist is not still employing his favorite symbols, one of his favorite symbols of night. They are coming to grips with the resurrection, but they still have not learned the profound truth that apart from Christ, they can do nothing. And so that night, they caught nothing. It's, an ast it's astounding that disciples who experience what they experienced slide back into fishing rather than pursuing the mission of Jesus Christ. They've fallen into spiritual malaise. It's something that happens to us. We are shocked by it, and yet it happens to us. It's human nature. Remember when Israel was brought through the Red Sea and they experienced the miracles of the manna and the quail? Next thing you see is they're grumbling. One of the lines in the choral piece today, prone to wander. And that's what we are, prone to wander. Prone to forget what Jesus Christ has done for us. If you're like me in the before I was a Christian, I'm sure you have experiences where you've thought about deep spiritual things. That you've had times when you've considered God, but then the thoughts drift away. You've pondered meaning and purpose in life and what's it all about and the spiritual dimension, but it doesn't stay with you. You've gone to a funeral and you begin to consider your own end. But the next day, you don't have another thought about it. 
Our hearts are prone to wander. Today, you're going to hear about Jesus Christ again and his truths. You might say that's worthy of considering. But shortly after you walk off outside of this church, you won't be considering it. Consider it. Consider who he is, what he has done. Or you're like me, if you just let it slip away, the fire dwindles, just like the disciples. But what will change us? What will keep us in touch with Jesus Christ and that fire reignited? We see it in Jesus' response to the disciples. Notice the next words. Just as day was breaking. Think again of John's symbolism. Jesus is the one who breaks through the darkness. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And Jesus answered, they answered him, no. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. They cast it and now they weren't able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. Uh, the disciple that Jesus, whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his garment, he stripped for work, he threw himself into the sea and the other disciple came in the boat, dragged the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. So you, you get that scene. It's interesting that John calls them children. It's the word for little children because that's where they are right now spiritually. But he's about to change that. And he changes it through his presence. His, the reality that Jesus is there with them changes them in that moment. Uh, in the scene itself, the hall of fish is a reminder and takes them back to what happened earlier in their ministry, in Jesus' ministry. Luke chapter 5 brings it out, and I just want to read this, this story. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, Peter's, Jesus asked them to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When they'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night, and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. They came, they filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said, Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And so this scene just brings them back to the time when they first experienced this type of miracle. And Peter's response was to fall on his knees and worship and declare that he was not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. 
And so now they're brought back to that time and they're reminded of, I've called you not to fish for fish, but to fish for men. Very simple answer to our spiritual malaise that is to get into the presence of Jesus Christ, to stay in the presence of Jesus Christ. When we come to open our word, the Bible, it is not about reading our passage for the day. It's not about simply learning more about God. It is meeting with God where God is speaking his truth into us. When we go into the gospel, it is not an old story. It is the reality and presence of Jesus Christ and what he has done that can touch every area of our lives. Jesus told his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. The disciples were not abiding in Jesus, so they caught no fish. We need to keep Jesus Christ present in our lives and refresh ourselves with the truths that may sound like old stories because we've heard them so many times, but they are incredible spiritual realities in our lives. As the story continues to unfold, we realize that Jesus shows them more realities about himself. It says in verse 9, when they got on the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so were the fish. This is now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So you see, Jesus is at a charcoal fire. He's got some fish going. They come and he invites them to breakfast. And then he took the bread and gave it to them. And then he took the fish and gave it to them. Does that bring anything back to your recollection. Anybody takes the bread, he takes the fish. Any lights going on here? John chapter 6, of course, where Jesus, again, distinctly takes the bread first, prays for it, and then brings the fish out. And John is bringing us back to that truth about Jesus Christ, that he is our provision. He is the bread of life. So he's given us the fact that we can't do anything apart from him. We can't catch fish apart from him. He's given us that he is the provision and he invites us to dinner. He says, come and have breakfast. And this is an echo, probably a pre-echo of what John is going to say to the church at Laodicea in the book of Revelation. He says to them, you're neither hot nor are you cold. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. But then says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, 
I will come in to him and dine with him and sup with him. So what's the solution to the, the lukewarm heart? It's once again inviting Christ in, making him real in our lives, fellowshipping with him. What's the solution to, for those who are not yet Christian? Invite Jesus Christ in. Accept the reality of what he's done for you in dying on the cross, taking your sins. Make that real in your life and move forward in fellowshipping with him. Jesus said, abide in me, remain in me. And then he gets specific in John 15. And he says, as the Father has loved me, excuse me, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in Jesus' love. And realize that love is at the same level of the Father's love for the Son. Does that blow you away? How much does God love you? As much as the Father loves the Son. Why don't we live in that reality? No matter what's going on in your life, you can stop and say, the Father, Jesus loves me. So much he died for me. So much it's like the Father's love for the Son. Abide in that love. And so as the story moves on, Jesus moves right to Peter. And it's a story of love. And we read it as, as Jesus has commissioned Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This story at first glance looks like it's about Peter's love. But that Peter's, Peter's love is based in Jesus' love for him. The story is really first about Jesus' love. The key word here is charcoal fire. Charcoal fire appears only two times in Scripture. Previous time, Jesus has been arrested. Peter is following him. Jesus is taken in for the trial. Peter warms himself at a charcoal fire. And the servant girl comes to him and says, you're with him. And he says, no, I don't know him. And three times Peter denies Jesus at the charcoal fire. So it's very clear that John is again painting this picture, that backdrop of Peter's betrayal. But this is about Peter's restoration. It's the reason he asked Peter three times in that restoration. But this presupposes Jesus' full forgiveness of a man 
who had betrayed him. A man who had promised everyone else might leave you and forsake you, but not me. I'll stand with you. I will die with you. And yet a servant girl scares him so much. He says, I, I don't know him. Three times he says it. When Jesus is being tried and about to be crucified, he's saying, don't know him, don't know him. Want nothing to do with him. Repeatedly, it wasn't one time, over and over and over again, he commits the same sin. And yet Jesus loves him and has forgiven him. the end of John chapter 2, John writes this. When a lot of people were believing in Jesus, and it says, but Jesus didn't believe in them. It says, because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about men, for he himself knew what was in man. And what it's saying is, Jesus knew everything about Peter, not just those three denials. Not just every impetulant act, not every uh, arrogant path he took. He knew every sin in Peter's life. Peter even says it in his third, I love you. Lord, you know everything. I know you know all the bad things about me. Don't you know there's a good thing about me too? You know, in uh, the movie The Fisher King, Amanda Plummer plays this uh, klutzy, mousy wallflower who has no friends. Robin Williams takes her out. At the end of the day, he takes her in and says, I want to talk to you. And she says, no, no. If you got to know me, you would not like me. I'm tired of rejection. It was nice to go out, but everyone who gets to know me doesn't like me, so thanks. And Robin Williams says, I do know you. I know that you think you're awkward. I know that you think you're clumsy. I know that you are kind of clumsy. But I want you to know that I know who you are, and I love you, and I will never leave you, and I will never, ever forsake you. She looks at him as if she's looking into the heart of what she thought was an enemy, and she sees their understanding and love, and she says, are you real? See, Jesus is real. He knows everything in our hearts. He knows if we're klutzy and we're clumsy. He knows if we're arrogant or gossipy. He knows every sin about us. And yet, he put all of those sins on the cross for us, and he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's Jesus' love, and that's what Peter is experiencing. Lord, you know everything. Yes, he does. And so, he's forgiven Peter, and he's about to commission Peter. Now, I don't know why you would choose Peter. Usually when we choose, we don't say, okay, I have died on the cross. I have given my all. And of course, that message, if it isn't passed on, if it isn't brought to people, then it's, 
all I did is, is inconsequential. So let me pick out a person who's going to really uh, not only be a fisherman, but a shepherd of my sheep. Peter, that's the guy I want. But he chooses Peter, and his condition obviously isn't, are you a failure or not? His condition is asked him the question, Peter, do you love me more than these? That's the question we all have to ask. Do we love him more than these? Now, the these commentators, most of them say that these are uh, the other disciples. Do you love me more than the other disciples love you? You compared yourself to them in the past, so I'll compare you to them. It just doesn't seem like humble Jesus who wants humility all of, from all of us is going to juxtapose Peter as being greater than the other disciples in his love. That doesn't fit the character of Jesus. Others believe he's saying, Jesus, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Again, that doesn't seem like fits the character of Jesus. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love one another. The best understanding, especially in the context, is what, has, what did Peter do? You would thought Peter would have been on mission for Jesus Christ, storming the world with the gospel, but instead he goes fishing. What does he love more? The fishing, these fish, the boats, is, is that your love or am I your love? So that's the qualification. If we're going to be his servants, if we're going to move out for Christ, the question is, what do you love most in life? Do we love Jesus the most, or is there something else in our lives? You know, often when a person sins, somebody says, well, you don't love Jesus. No, you can love Jesus and sin but you can't love Jesus more than that sin and sin. So what's that fill in the blank in your life? I love this the most. Peter's able to say, yes, Lord, I love you. And he says it three times, of course. Notice, again, if I was Jesus, I'm trying to get Peter and make sure he's qualified, my question would probably be, uh, Peter, do you promise you'll never betray me again? Peter, do you realize what you've actually done when you said you did, didn't know me? Peter, give me a reason to trust you in the future. Peter, have you changed at all? It's not Jesus' question. It's do you love me? doesn't matter your successes or failures. Jesus is calling us to serve, but the question we have to answer is, do we love him? See, Peter's betrayal doesn't disqualify. It qualifies Peter. When Jesus says, shepherd my sheep, he says that to a failure because that failing is what is transforming Peter into a man who has the qualities of a shepherd. Think about it. 
if somebody's going to come alongside you and shepherd you and your failures and your sin and your need to, to be changed, do you want somebody who's perfect and has just never fallen, doesn't know what it's like to, to ever uh, fall to temptation, doesn't know what it's like to, to struggle with sin, doesn't know what it's like to experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that's so refreshing after, that relieves your guilt when you think you've, you've completely failed and lost it and ruined your life forever? Or would you like a Peter who did something that seemed like he ruined his life forever, but he didn't? Because he knew, he knows temptation, he knows grace, he knows forgiveness, and he's a living example to come alongside and shepherd. It didn't disqualify him, it qualified him. In fact, in Luke 22, even before the betrayal, <clears throat> knowing the betrayal was going to happen, Jesus said to him, Simon to Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brother. He said, when you've turned again. Peter, Satan's sifting you like wheat, and I know you're going to fail, I know you're going to deny but when you're restored, when you've come back to me, you are going to be the one who's able to strengthen your brothers. You're going to have qualities that help them move on, understand temptation, and receive forgiveness. And think about that. How many people who never met Jesus, Peter, are transformed and given hope because of Peter. I remember working in a, uh, a warehouse and I was in the trailer with a fellow and I was talking about Jesus and he said, oh, you, you don't know what I've done. God could never forgive me. And if you knew, you knew my life, you would know he couldn't forgive me. What story would you tell him? Tell him the thief on the cross. You can tell him about Peter and about the other apostle, Paul, whose failures also qualified him to be the greatest spokesman for Christ. Jesus is bringing him back. He brings us back with his presence just to keep him in his presence, to answer the question. We know his love. Feel that love. Let that draw us into love with him and hear the commission. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. And so you have two things in this passage. You're to be fishers of men and you're to be shepherds of the sheep. They both have to be there. There are a lot of churches that focus on we're going to fish and we're going we're to bring people to Jesus Christ. And a lot of them have a don't shepherd on a very deep level. Don't help people mature. Then there's other churches that are very mature. Uh, we shepherd with the truth, but we do very little fishing. We're trying to move forward in both of those at Westgate. That's why our plan forward has been 
to form an outreach uh, task force to see how we can change ourselves to be fishermen. And then we want to follow that up with securing discipleship and shepherding the flock. They have to go together. And uh, so Peter now is going to shepherd the sheep. And so Jesus tells them, remembering the charcoal fire, why did Peter deny Jesus? Because he didn't want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus to the cross. And so Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you did not go. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. And he said, follow me. Peter denied Jesus because he didn't want to follow Jesus to the cross. And now Peter, Jesus is saying, Peter, you love me, you're going to shepherd my sheep, and you're going to follow me to the cross. Are you going to follow me? And Peter responds, what about this guy? <laughs> and Jesus' answer is, everybody has a different path. This isn't about me and everybody else, Peter. It's about me and you. John's path may be the same. It may be different. And so we need to realize, let's not be comparing ourselves to others and a person that seems so blessed with the external things and we seem so troubled, uh, troubled and struggling in life and uh, it's just the path God has for us. And that path could be the path of Jesus Christ. And Christ says, follow me. And of course, history records that that's actually what happened. Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, speaks of G. Peter's uh, crucifixion. Uh, Eusebius says, thus publicly announcing himself as the first among God's chief enemies, he, Nero, was led on to slaughter the, uh, the apostles. It's therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. This account of Peter, Paul, is substantiated by the fact that their names are preserved in the cemeteries of that place even to the present day. Yes, he was crucified, and I'm sure he said, I love you and I will follow you. Where are we at in our spiritual lives? Don't let <clears throat> the message slip away. Stay connected to Christ every moment. Feel his love and his call. And be willing to follow him wherever he goes. You know, this, I don't know if you saw the movie Sister Act, and in that Whoopi Goldberg takes these nuns, and she takes pop songs that speak about people's love for one another, and she invests them with a deeper meaning in love for Christ. And uh, one of the songs they sang really fits today. It says, I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go, and near him I always be, will be, for nothing can keep me away. He is my destiny. 
I will follow him ever since he's touched my heart, I know. There isn't an ocean too deep, a mountain so high it can keep, keep me away, away from his love. I love him, I love him, I love him. And where he goes, I'll follow, I'll follow, I'll follow. I will follow him, follow him wherever he may go. Our Father, let us make that a truth in our lives. Let us know your love, declare your love, and follow you wherever you may go. Amen.